Greetings and welcome once again to Author in the Room, a monthly program sponsored by JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, and IHI, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. I'm Dr. Shute, and I will be your moderator for today's call. We are delighted that you could join us today. As you know, Author in the Room calls are designed to translate new knowledge, which is published in a recent JAMA article, into actionable steps that can improve clinical practice and patient care. Author in the Room occurs on the third Wednesday of every month, at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, with the next call being on March 18th. The article for that call will be Smoking Cessation in Patients with Psychiatric Illness. Please join us. Several organizations have made Author in the Room a regular part of their learning experience, and we certainly encourage everyone to do so. Today, our featured author is Dr. Mary McDermott, uh, lead author of the article Treadmill Exercise and Resistance Training, in patients with peripheral arterial disease with and without intermittent claudication, published in the January 16, 2009 issue of JAMA. Dr. McDermott is an associate professor, Northwestern University, and directs clinical research programs that focus on identifying mechanisms of walking impairment and decline in walking performance in patients with lower extremity peripheral arterial disease. Her studies include clinical trials designed to improve walking performance and reduction of heart disease and stroke in patients with peripheral arterial disease. Dr. McDermott has received national awards for her research, and she's an elected member of the um, American Society of Clinical Investigation. She also directs National Institute of Health-sponsored vascular medicine training program for physicians, leads the research support program at Northwestern University, and serves as a contributing editor to the Journal of the American Medical Association. She maintains a clinical practice in internal medicine as well. Welcome, Dr. McDermott. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. And a pleasure to have you. Um, as moderator, it's my job to help focus our discussion on the application of Dr. McDermott's research with the goal of driving performance improvement in our clinical practices based on this article. The purpose of Author in the Room is to let you hear directly from the author about her research findings. Uh, together, Dr. McDermott and I will help you translate this research into improvements in your practice. Here's how the hour will proceed. Dr. McDermott will spend about 10 to 15 minutes summarizing her findings. Then we will talk briefly to draw out some implications for real-world practice setting and set the stage uh, for us to take your questions and comments. Uh, we want to stress how important your participation is in these calls. This is a great forum in which you get clarification on anything in the article itself by hearing directly from the lead author and to contemplate with others the significance of the findings and the steps you might take in using this information towards the improvement of care. Your participation, not just in terms of questions, but also offering up your experience in this area will be helpful to the call. There are approximately 50 phone lines connected to the call today, generally with several individuals participating per line. Some members of the media may be present on today's call on a background basis only. One other note, this call is being recorded and will be made available on the IHI and JAMA websites as streaming audio or podcasts. Complete details and instructions are available under the program section of IHI.org. Prior author in the room calls are also available on those sites. Now let's get started. Let me again welcome Dr. McDermott, who will begin with an overview of her recent article. Dr. McDermott. Thank you. So um, this study is a randomized controlled clinical trial, and it was designed to test the ability of exercise interventions to improve functional performance in patients with peripheral arterial disease. And uh, as background to the study, there were two um, unique features of this particular study. First, we know already that supervised treadmill exercise improves walking performance in patients with peripheral arterial disease who have classic symptoms of intermittent claudication. However, most men and women with peripheral arterial disease don't have those classic symptoms of intermittent claudication. Many patients with PAD are asymptomatic, or they may have leg symptoms other than intermittent claudication. And prior to this study, no previous clinical trials have tested whether 
exercise interventions improve walking performance in patients with PAD both with and without symptoms of intermittent claudication. The other uh, knowledge gap that this study fills is having to do with strength training for patients with peripheral arterial disease. Prior to this study, there had been a couple of small clinical trials looking at strength training in patients with peripheral arterial disease, uh, but results of those studies had been mixed. So um, there was no clear evidence that um, strength training improved functional performance in patients with peripheral arterial disease. So we set out to determine, number one, whether exercise training can improve walking performance in PAD patients, whether or not they have the classic symptom of claudication, and secondly, to determine whether leg strengthening improves functional performance in the patient with peripheral arterial disease. Um, the study design was a randomized controlled clinical trial that had three arms, and those arms were first, um, supervised treadmill exercise, second, lower extremity resistance training, and third, uh, what we call an intention control group. And I'll briefly summarize um, each of those study arms. Uh, first, for the supervised treadmill exercise group, the participants came to our exercise facility three times a week. They worked directly with a trainer, and um, the uh, trainer would um, have them walking on the treadmill. Uh, the goal was ultimately to achieve uh, 40 minutes of walking exercise, and um, this was over a six-month period, so three times a week, 40 minutes of exor walking exercise. The resistance training group involved uh, several leg strengthening programs with weights. These were um, a leg curl, a leg press, and a knee extension. Um, we also had them doing some toe rise exercises, uh, just supporting themselves against the wall. And with those exercises, they would do three sets of eight repetitions. Again, they were coming three times a week. They were working directly with the trainer. And each week we would make an attempt to increase the amount of weights they were lifting so that they were progressing um, throughout uh, the study. And then um, the, the third um, study arm was uh, the attention control, and those participants did not get any exercise, um, but they came down to the medical center uh, for 11 informational nutrition sessions over the six-month period. Um, so those uh, were the three groups, and um, we identified patients with peripheral arterial disease from across the city of Chicago um, using newspaper radio advertisements going to medical centers to identify patients with lower extremity peripheral arterial disease. And um, participants with an ankle brachial index consistent with peripheral arterial disease um, were eligible no matter what their leg symptoms. So they could have be asymptomatic, they could have atypical symptoms, or intermittent claudication. They were all um, eligible to participate. Um, they um, all went under uh, baseline testing and prior to randomization, and the baseline testing included a variety of functional performance measures, some quality of life measures, treadmill testing, and a measure of endothelial function. Um, our primary outcome measures were, number one, the six-minute walk performance, and we also had the short physical performance battery as another primary outcome and I just want to take a minute and tell you why we selected those primary outcomes. We selected the six-minute walk as a primary outcome because um, it's clearly a measure of walking endurance. We, um, there are some data to suggest that the six-minute walk is a better measure of 
community walking ability in older men and women than, for example, treadmill walking performance. And also, we knew that the participants in the supervised treadmill exercise group we're going to be walking on a treadmill as part of their exercise three times a week. So we wanted to have a measure of walking endurance that wasn't directly related to the type of exercise that they were performing. So we, we chose a six-minute walk as our primary measure of walking endurance. But the short physical performance battery, um, that is a measure of lower extremity performance that combines um, several tasks, a balanced task, walking speed over um, four meters and time to stand from a seated position five times as quickly as possible. The short physical performance battery predicts uh, mobility loss and it pre predicts mortality in older men and women. And we selected that as an outcome measure because we uh, thought that our strength training group would be perhaps more likely to, to improve on global measures of um, lower extremity functioning and our leg strengthening intervention was specifically targeting leg strength and some balance measures. So those were our two primary outcome measures. Um, as I indicated, we also had quality of life measures. Those included the short form 36 physical functioning um, score and also the walking impairment questionnaire measure of patient perceived walking distance stair climbing ability and walking speed. We did include a treadmill exercise test as an outcome measure, and also we measured global arterial health with brachial artery flow-mediated dilation. So all of these measures um, were tested at baseline. Participants were randomized to the three arms that I described, and then they returned six months later for follow-up testing. Um, so, oh, and there's one, I'm sorry, there's one other um, outcome measure that we um, assessed, and that was physical activity during daily life. The participants were given a Caltrack vertical accelerometer to wear for seven days, and they wore that at baseline, and then after the completion of their exercise or uh, control group um, sessions, they wore it uh, at the six-month follow-up. So our results, um, first, with regard to our primary outcome measure of the six-minute walk, we found that the participants in the supervised treadmill exercise arm had significant improvement in their six-minute walk performance compared to the usual care attention control group. We found that the strength group did not significantly improve their six-minute walk performance compared to our control group, um, and actually neither group significantly improved their short physical performance battery, neither exercise group improved, compared to the control group. So those were our findings for our primary outcomes. Now, um, for the other outcomes, first, starting with the supervised treadmill exercise group, uh, that group significantly improved their treadmill walking performance, uh, both the maximum distance that they could achieve on a treadmill and also the length of time until they developed leg symptoms. That group also improved their brachial artery flow mediate dilation suggesting improvement in their overall cardiovascular health with that measure. Also, the supervised treadmill exercise group significantly improved their quality of life measured by the short form 36 score and their walking impairment questionnaire distance score. Um, and all of those were improvements compared to the control group. For the leg strengthening group, um, that group significantly improved their maximum treadmill walking performance, and they significantly improved their quality of life, measured by the short form 36 physical functioning score and also the WIQ distance score. Um, we did not find that either of the exercise groups significantly improved their physical activity during daily life in response um, to the exercise. Um, 
So uh, just to summarize then, um, this randomized controlled clinical trial demonstrated that supervised treadmill walking exercise significantly improves uh, walking endurance, quality of life, and um, uh, cardiovascular health as measured by improvement in the brachial artery flow-mediated dilation in patients with PAD, whether or not they have classic symptoms of intermittent claudication. The study also um, demonstrated that leg strengthening improves some measures of walking performance in the PAD patient with and without claudication. It improves treadmill walking performance, and it improves um, quality of life, uh, particularly um, stair climbing. I, I, I didn't mention this earlier, but the um, leg strengthening significantly improved the WIQ stair climbing score as well. Um, so uh, the take-home message, and uh, I think how clinicians can use this in their practice is, uh, number one, um, exercise, particularly supervised treadmill walking exercise, should be recommended for all patients with peripheral arterial disease, whether or not they have classic symptoms of intermittent claudication, because that exercise intervention significantly improves uh, walking performance, and it also um, improves brachial artery flow-mediated dilation. Um, so uh, for the clinic, I mean, I think this partly behooves us to identify um, the PAD that is not accompanied by the typical symptoms, for example, PAD that is asymptomatic, and recommend to those individuals that they um, uh, engage in a supervised uh, exercise training program. The study also suggests that leg strengthening may also, it is of benefit for some measures um, of performance, particularly quality of life, treadmill walking, and patient-perceived um, stair climbing ability. Um, so um, in summary, uh, patients with PAD, whether or not they have classic symptoms of claudication, should be encouraged to exercise, supervised treadmill exercise, um, being probably most optimal, but leg strengthening also having some benefit for those who don't have access, for example, to a supervised treadmill exercise program. Thank you, Dr. McDermott. Now we want to turn to think a little bit about what this research suggests about changes in our clinical practice. Um, where do we begin if we want to turn these findings into better patient care? Uh, as a general internist, I look at this and, and I think two things come to mind um, that perhaps we need to do. And one you identified is beginning to diagnose patients who are symptomatic or asymptomatic for peripheral arterial disease to simply know who we should treat. And then the second challenge that I see is how do we efficiently refer these patients or connect them to resources that they can actually accomplish this behavior, whether it's in a supervised or unsupervised fashion. So to me, I think there's some real system design challenges in that, especially in the life of a typical family medicine or internal medicine physician, where there's really a very long list of things that we need to and should be doing with a relatively short period of time. So any thoughts, Dr. McDermott, uh, from your perspective now as a clinician about how we can accomplish this reliably and efficiently in a typical internal medicine practice? Yes, thank you, Dr. Shu. Those are both important and uh, excellent questions. Uh, with regard to the first question of how do we identify the patient with PAD, particularly that person that doesn't have the classic symptom, I mean, the good news is that the ankle brachial index, uh, the ratio of Doppler recorded systolic pressures at the ankle to the pressure at the brachial artery is an extremely reliable, non-invasive test that is highly sensitive and specific for diagnosing peripheral arterial disease, and that ankle brachial index can be performed in clinician offices. Uh, you know, it takes maybe 10 minutes or so to perform that test. Um, and just as further um, uh, data, if you will, and what could happen if that were used, 
the, um, the partner study that was published in 2001 demonstrated that if you screen uh, patients in primary care practices age 70 and older, or those 50 to 69 with the history of diabetes or smoking, the prevalence of PAD is nearly 30%. So there's a lot of disease out there, and if we screen for it with the ADI, we can identify it. Re reality, on the other hand, is that you know 10 minutes is still a fair amount of time in a um, in a patient office visit, and um, so in reality, the ABI often you know, just doesn't get done. Um, it can be done by a nursing staff or, um, you know, not even nursing training. Anybody that can measure blood pressure accurately can do an ABI. But what I hear you saying is that the prevalence is so high, 30% in persons over 70 years of age, that perhaps that's something that we want to, that we should think about making part of routine screening. Yes, I think that um, absolutely. And, and not only because the exercise um, uh, intervention is so useful, but also because these patients are at increased risk of cardiovascular events, and this can help ensure they get the, um, the medical management that they need. Perfect. Um, and then before we go to our callers, can you just briefly address uh, in a real-world setting what can we do for our patients to help them actually um, succeed at the walking or the resistance training activities? Right. So, well, first of all, because this study focused on supervised exercise, um, it's ideal if we can get them into uh, a supervised program where they're working with a trainer. And, for example, cardiac rehabilitation centers often have protocols for the patient with PAD. Um, the problem is that oftentimes insurance companies don't cover that. Uh, and, you know, if you're going three times a week, it can add up. There are a uh, few insurance companies that cover, but helping our patients get to a supervised setting where they can exercise is a way that we can um, apply this research. Great. Well, thank you very much. Um, now we're going to turn to questions from you, our callers. Uh, your questions can include either the implications of this research, how to use the information to make uh, changes in our practice or the very concrete questions of how do we actually make improvements in a clinical setting. And please do feel free to share examples of what you've already tried or what you may be considering in terms of implementing this research. Um, so I think, Sunny, let's go ahead and um, invite questions from our callers. Thank you. The question and answer session will be conducted electronically. If you would like to ask a question, please do so by pressing the star key followed by the digit 1 on your touchtone telephone. If you're using a speakerphone, please make sure your mute function is turned off to allow your signal to reach our equipment. Once again, that is star 1 on your touchtone telephone, and we'll pause for a moment to assemble the queue. Great. Thank you, Sonny. And, and while we're paused, Dr. McDermott, do you care to comment? I guess one thing that comes to mind very quickly is um, what about patients who are motivating, motivated and may not have either access to a supervised setting or the financial resources for supervised um, training? Uh, any wisdom about the uh, efficacy of an intervention where we would just counsel patients to do this on their own, either on a treadmill or outside? Yes, well, that's a great question. There have been a couple of small clinical trials that compare physician advice uh, for exercise three times a week versus a supervised program. Um, there's not a lot of data, but the data we have suggests the supervised is better. But for the patient who doesn't have access to that, I absolutely would still recommend that they go walking for exercise at least three times weekly. And uh, I encourage them to work up to the point where they're walking 30 or 40 minutes if they can. Um, it's all right for them to rest as they need to, but when they're able to, they should start walking again um, until they've uh, reached a total of 30 minutes or if they can go more, up to even 40 minutes like we did in the supervised program. So they should be encouraged to do that, um, but it really takes, I think, a highly motivated patient because of the leg pain they experience. Great. Thank you, Dr. McDermott. Sonny, do we have any questions in the queue? Not at this time. Wonderful. Well, let me let me ask one then, um, you know, and I'll maybe make a comment. I mean, to me, this seems like one more piece of evidence that tells us that exercise has a therapeutic benefit. 
Uh, and it comes on top of similar recommendations for other clinical conditions that seem to associate with peripheral artery disease, obesity, diabetes, hypertension, um, coronary disease. So in, in some ways where this may seem somewhat challenging in terms of yet another intervention, another way to look at it is it does seem to really reinforce um, or be one more reason to give advice that, that we're already giving. Um, any thoughts on that? Yes, um, what you said, Dr. Shute, is absolutely true. I, I think why this is still important um, is because we know that the patient with peripheral arterial disease um, has a more rapid rate of decline in functional performance than the individual without PAD, and so one could argue that the exercise may be even more important for the PAD patient because of that rapid, more rapid rate of decline. And, and I think, you know, another piece of this that's important that our study found is that not only does um, the supervised treadmill exercise improve walking performance, but the fact that the brachial artery flow media dilation improved suggests a benefit for global cardiovascular health in these patients. And that had not been demonstrated before, and I think it's particularly important for the patient with peripheral arterial disease because they're at such high risk of cardiovascular events. And um, we, did, you know, we didn't have a large enough study to look at the outcome of cardiovascular events, but the implication is this, may be protect, this exercise may be protecting them against those future heart disease and stroke events that they're at such high risk for. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more, Dr. McDermott, about the implications of the brachial artery flow-mediated dilation? Uh, what, what does that mean and, and what does that imply? Sure. So with the brachial artery flow-mediated dilation, in essence, it's the ability of the artery to dilate in response to stress. So um, what we know from other studies is that people who have cardiovascular risk factors or established coronary artery disease have, uh, um, you know, impaired endothelial function, meaning that if they have a sudden stress, let's say, you know, they, they suddenly get um, a clot in one of their coronary arteries that's partially occlusive, they have, their artery has less ability to accommodate that. They can't dilate to encourage as much blood to flow around it, for example. Um, so um, the fact that the exercise could improve that arterial function suggests that maybe um, it could protect these PAD patients against these events because the arteries become healthier, and if there is an acute embolic phenomenon in the arteries, it might you know, suggest that they'd be better able to handle that and avoid, say, unstable angina or a heart attack. Well, wow, so that's very exciting. So, so obviously there could be theoretically some protection against either the occurrence of stroke or myocardial infarction or a, a mitigation of the damage. And are, are other studies being done that you're aware of to address that question? Well, not in peripheral arterial disease patients, um, to my knowledge. Um, you know, prior to our study, there was one study only that a clinical trial that had looked at this in PAD patients, but it wasn't a controlled study. So um, ours had a control arm, so it provides more definitive um, evidence that there may be a global benefit. And, you know, to me, what's partly interesting about this is the fact that our exercise was focused on the lower extremities, but this was an improvement in brachial artery function, you know, in the arm. So it suggests that the benefit from the supervised treadmill exercise was really systemic. Great. Thank you very much. So that's great. Sonny, do we have any uh, callers in the queue at this time? Yes, we do. We'll take our first question from Grant Mavic with Capital Health. Um, hi, thanks. Um, excellent paper, great presentation. Um, I, I'm fortunate in that I work in cardiac rehab in Edmonton, Alberta, so some of your issues down south we're not facing, so we're, we're lucky with our population that we have. Um, it was interesting, the, the benefits you found in your two separate groups. I'm just wondering if you've done research or if you could speculate um, if a group did both aerobic and strength training in the same session for the same length of time. Yes, that's a great question. Um, we, you know, as you know, our study did not address the issue of combined 
mm-hmm. leg strengthening and supervised treadmill exercise. Um, there was a very small study that addressed that question a number of years ago that um, suggested that the combination was not better than treadmill alone, but it was a small study, and I don't think we should uh, make any firm conclusions uh, based on that one uh, relatively small trial. I think, you know, this is a great area for future research, uh, whether a combined strength training and supervised treadmill exercise achieves even greater improvements than, say, supervised treadmill exercise alone. Um, and it's possible, particularly since there were some, uh, you know, some of our findings between the strength and the treadmill were complementary. For example, the improvement in patient-reported stair climbing ability in the strength-trained arm um, versus the improvement in brachial artery function only in the supervised treadmill arm. So perhaps we could get the greatest benefit of all if both were applied, but I think we'll need to await future research for that. Great. And Grant, thanks for your question, and I have one for you. Um, how do you approach cardiac rehab uh, in Canada? Is it a covered benefit? Is it something that's standardly done? Um, and if so, is it primarily um, exercise or is it resistance training? Um, in Canada, we have social medicine, so in theory, everybody that's working puts a little bit of their income into a pot that pays for health care for all. So it's uh, anybody that's sick generally gets taken care of. Um, that sounds idealistic, and it probably is. We do have some glitches, for sure, just in sheer numbers of patients that access our systems. Sure, but how about the, the specific benefit of cardiac rehab? It's uh, It's been documented that it's been beneficial for all that attend. Most cardiac rehab programs in Canada include an education and an exercise component. Um, uh, so there's classes on risk factor reduction, but there's also classes where patients attend and exercise. Most do aerobic uh, training, but uh, a lot of patients also do some anaerobic strength training as well. Great, great. Okay. Uh, any additional questions, Grant? Um, no, this, uh, we're um, we're finding that a, a subset of our population, patients that come to us all have had a cardiac event, but a subset, probably around 30%, actually have PVD. So we're starting to do a pilot study just looking at specific needs uh, uh, for this PVD pa- uh, population. So this study was a perfect timing for us because we're looking at doing a pilot project. Great. Sure. Wonderful. All right. Well, thank you for your call. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Great. Sunny, any other callers in the queue at this time? Not at this time. Okay, great. Well, you know, Dr. McDermott, it, that sort of segues us to the more interesting issue of uh, benefits, you know, what we have the ability to access in healthcare. Um, interesting to hear in Canada, at least, that for folks post-MI, that's clearly a covered benefit, and it sounds like a lot of patients are taking advantage of that. Do you have any feelings or thoughts or advice more at the system level? Um, is this something that we should be making available to patients, uh, admittedly, in a time when we've got a crisis in healthcare of our ability to fund things? Well, that's a terrific question. Um, and as I alluded to earlier, currently Medicare does not pay for the benefit of supervised treadmill exercise in patients with peripheral arterial disease. Um, and yes, I, I mean, based on the data, there's, you know, even before this trial, there were a wealth of data for the patient with classic claudication showing that supervised treadmill exercise significantly improves their walking performance. Um, now we have the, the similar findings for patients no matter whether or not they have classic symptoms of claudication. So um, I think in an ideal world, um, it should be covered. But uh, as um, you've alluded to, Dr. Shu, we've got scarce resources, and um, it's been our government, you know, in the United States, our government's decision uh, not to to cover it, at least um, not at the current time. And are you aware of any data on the cost effectiveness of that intervention on all costs or mortality? Um, I am. Not aware of any data on mortality. I do recall that in vascular medicine a few years ago, there was a cost-effectiveness analysis of supervised treadmill exercise for the P80 patient with claudication. Um, and my memory is that they were comparing it to um, 
to lower extremity revascularization, and the supervised exercise was quite cost-effective. Um, and I should also point out that there have been um, a couple of studies, clinical trials, that have compared supervised treadmill exercise to lower extremity revascularization, either stent placement and angioplasty in one study or um, surgical revascularization, and as compared to angioplasty stent, exercise is actually better at, at the six-month endpoint compared to uh, the angioplasty stent, and in the surgical revascularization, walking performance was similar uh, between the exercise and the surgical group at six-month follow-up. So, you know, there's the, the exercise uh, really, you know, if the patient sticks with it, can have some uh, reasonably long-term benefits that are comparable to uh, invasive interventions. So, um, you know, it should be extremely cost-effective. No, and that's, that's very exciting, and, and that's good guidance. Um, you know, I see one of the challenges, and, and you've alluded to this, Dr. McDermott, is how do we help our patients succeed at this? Um, obviously, you have a highly selected population in a study and then some resources to support them in, in exercise. Um, I think one of the challenges that many of us face is, as clinicians is how do we be effective in helping patients make behavior changes that are clearly evidence-based but that just don't happen with the prevalence that, or with the frequency that we would like. And so um, I guess I would invite, number one, any of our listeners on the phone, if they have any success or any tips on behavior change successes, whether it's for walking behaviors or other patient behaviors, to go ahead and call in and give us, give us those tips. And in the meantime, to ask you, Dr. McDermott, if you have any uh, tips or successes um, on how you get your patients to make some of these behavior changes. Well, I think that it's really difficult to get them to make some of these behavior changes. And I, you know, my experience is that the PAD patients, some of those barriers are even greater than they are in your typical patient in a general medical practice. And the reason that the barriers are even greater is uh, because they have leg pain with walking. And it is so difficult. And many of these patients... You know, they can only walk a block or two blocks, so it's a it's a relatively short distance before they have significant ischemic pain um, or other symptoms that um, prevent them from continuing. So um, it's a real challenge. I, I think that um, this is why the trainer can can be so helpful. But but I, I think um, I, I don't have. I mean, I don't have any. Um, uh, solutions that um, have been demonstrated to definitively be helpful, but I will say I think it behooves us as clinicians to keep reminding our patient with PAD um, when they don't have access to these supervised programs how important it is. There are observational data suggesting that the PAD patient who goes walking for exercise three times weekly has less decline in walking performance than uh -huh. the patient that doesn't. Um, so I think reminding them of that, telling them it's okay if they have to stop and rest, um, but that the point is that they get out there and, and they do it. And, and also giving them suggestions when it's cold, like in Chicago, you know, where can they, there are places, senior centers they could go or malls they can go and still walk. Yeah, good good suggestion. And, and you know, I, there's some, some literature, too, I think, that's come through the work in chronic care that Wagner et al. have done that say a couple things we as clinicians can do is one is to have a more formal formal process for patient goal setting. And there's some, some data that actually setting specific time-measured behavioral goals is helpful. And, and another piece which um, I think is very beneficial, although sometimes hard to do in primary care practice, is some sort of follow-up on those goals. So it's one thing to say, you know, walk 30 to 40 minutes three times a week and build up to it gradually, it tends to be a much more potent intervention if somewhere in the system, whether it's part of our practice or somewhere else in the healthcare delivery system, we actually check back with patients to both reinforce the importance of that exercise prescription to see how they're actually doing and to help address barriers. So that's another intervention that's got some evidence behind it. Um, so just a, a suggestion as well. 
Let me just check in with Sunny now and see if we have any questions um, in the queue. Yes, we do. And as a final reminder, it is star one to ask a question or if you have any comments. We have a question from Peter Ranai with Bridgeport Hospital. Great. Thanks, Peter. Go ahead, please. Uh, thank you, Dr. McDermott, and thank you to our moderator for bringing this excellent program. Um, I, I had a, just a quick comment um, on on how we put this together and make it work. And the American College of Sports Medicine just launched um, a new initiative, Exercises Medicine, and it has three arms. It's aimed toward the general public, the medical community, and the uh, exercise and fitness professional uh, community. And uh, this initiative is to try to bring a uh, connection between, between exercise professionals and uh, physicians to help educate their their patients regarding a number of chronic diseases and the relationship between physical activity and the management of diseases. And uh, it's, it's actually a tremendous um, tremendous initiative, and there's a lot of free materials for physicians. Uh, they have a whole series called Your Prescription for Health Series, which uh, basically helps a, a physician. Uh, it's a free kit, basically. It helps physicians explain how to get started, and then uh, the American College of Sports Medicine makes available a uh, network that you can look up to find uh, credentialed profess exercise professionals that would be proficient at, at working with these kinds of people across the country. Um, seeing that uh, Medicare is, is sometimes kind of stringent on reimbursing uh, in a cardiac rehab setting here in the United States. Uh, the, the other uh, thought that I had is that physical therapy clinics that are specifically linked with uh, hospitals, outpatient uh, clinics that are uh, affiliated with, with hospitals have slightly different uh, Medicare restraints as uh, standalone clinics. And uh, the consequence of the PAD, not necessarily the PAD as a diagnosis, but other, other comorbid conditions or some of the uh, consequent uh, deficiencies because of the disease are sometimes acceptable diagnoses to uh, bring someone into a PT realm where, where they can get some help get some reimbursement for, for these types of services where they can do treadmill walking and resistance training and whatnot. Well, thank you. Those, those are great suggestions. So the first thing you mentioned was some sort of a packet or some information to help physicians um, successfully create exercise prescriptions and then link patients to resources to succeed at that. Is there a URL you can share with us or is there a place online that those sure. of us that are interested can go to download some of this information? Absolutely. I'll be happy to give that to you. It's uh, www.exerciseismedicine.org. Great. Thank you very much. So an Great. online resource. And you've, you've hit on, I think, a really important thing in healthcare design, the fact is that we as physicians really can't do this work. And most of the kind of support that patients need is in the community, uh, not necessarily within the healthcare delivery system. Do you have any comments either on that statement I just made or uh, if you agree that really the most important parts may be in the community, any advice for us in how we can link more effectively with those resources in the community? That for Dr. McDermott? Uh, that was for you, actually, but uh, you can both take a shot at it. Uh, well, I, I, from, from, from my standpoint, because uh, I work in a rehab setting, um, you know, I think that the clinical exercise physiologists and I think that some physical therapists are really well-suited for this type of thing. And um, Many of us folks are, are accustomed to working with, uh, with uh, patients that have a number of comorbidities. And what you see is that um, with a lot of these populations, um, it's real easy to pigeonhole and say, well, this person has this diagnosis or that. And in actuality, um, as Dr. McDermott mentioned, you know, there are a lot of uh, comorbid uh, uh -huh. conditions and problems and risk factors that are uh, uh, in action. And so I, I, think, I think folks that work in rehab or even the, the uh, registered clinical exercise physiologists that the American College of Sports Medicine have, I think those folks are really adept at working with people that have, have a uh -huh. whole number of uh, things going on at once. They're really good at working with folks uh, in the big clinical picture, and I think that's one benefit. I think it's probably helpful to a physician to, to have as an ally someone that sure. um, can take their worries away and, and take care of that part. So, so that's helpful, certainly for those patients with many comorbid 
conditions to have someone with that level of expertise. How about when they're done with your program? Do you have any tricks for how you help them to keep exercising once they transition out of your setting of care? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that's the, the fit-for-life question that, that many practitioners have is, you know, let's keep this going and how do we do it? But, um, for instance, in many facilities, they offer a uh, continuation type of a membership at a very low cost because oftentimes what we find is that the, the patients, whether it's a cardiac patient or it's a orthopedic patient, what have you, or someone with a neuromuscular disorder or whatnot, once they get comfortable in this facility, they actually kind of want to stay. And uh-huh. So some facilities that are at a very reduced uh, fee will uh, make that make that available to people that are uh, at the point where they can be somewhat independent. Um, so a, a number of places are doing that. A lot of the hospital-based outpatient rehab centers do something along those lines. Um, with with a reduced fee to make it more sustainable for, for patients to pay for. Yes, and, and the reason that I mentioned the exercise is medicine piece is because um, – it, it's really looking at getting even even well-trained personal fitness trainers involved in the loop because sometimes that you know it's easier to get someone whose insurance may not cover um, a therapy benefit for a condition like that to link them up with someone um, who might do that or might do it in a small group and because they're working with a couple of people at once they'll discount their cash rates and things too. Got it. So, Great. Well, thank you for those great suggestions. Dr. McDermott, do you have any comments you'd like to add? Well, I I agree with um, what's been said with regard to um, use of, you know, trainers and additional resources to help the, particularly the PAD patient adhere to an exercise program because I absolutely agree. It's, It's really difficult for physicians to appropriately attend to that. Um, and I also agree, you know, one thing that's kind of exciting about these exercise programs is the patients do connect with, you know, the people they're seeing when they come in for exercise. And I think the idea of, you know, giving them, allowing them to continue, say, a program at a reduced rate is really wonderful because there is kind of this momentum and a social aspect to the exercise that helps it helps them adhere even after the program has officially ended. I think you've hit on a, gr- a very important point that it is the relationships that often sustain behavior, whether it's the relationship with an exercise uh, therapist or physiologist or in a group setting, the exercise, the relationship with other patients uh, can have a powerful effect on helping patients succeed at desirable behaviors. So thank you for that last call. I want to check in one more time with Sunny. We do have time for one more quick question. Do we have any questioners in the queue? We do. We have one question in the queue from Susan Kuka with Kaiser Permanente. Great. Thank you, Susan. Go ahead, please. Actually, it's Mark Patterson. I'm here with Susan. <laughs> thank you, Mark. Go ahead. I'm a clinical exercise physiologist in Kaiser Permanente here in Colorado. We're one of those... Uh, rare beasts that actually do uh, reimburse that's wonderful for exercise sessions it's it comes down to basically a, a, an office copay when they come in so it, it it's fairly affordable but uh, in the Denver metro area we only have one facility that we offer uh, the services to so there's always problems with um, traveling time distance and then you know, for some people uh, a copay for 36 sessions is too much for them uh-huh so what we've kind of developed is a, a program where it's a it's comprehensive uh, risk factor modification. You know, once we get a referral from one of the surgeons or the cardiologists, we have a team of people that are taking care of these these folks. Uh, we have RNs that do uh, counseling and help them uh, with modification of risk factors. Um, we also have <coughs> dietitians that, that we can count on. Uh, there's classes for people that have problems with, you know, stress, anxiety, that type of thing. And then the exercise piece, uh, I try to get everyone in for an initial consultation. And the initial consultation, I actually said it's like 90 minutes. So it's a very comprehensive consultation where we'll do an assessment. You know, we'll do a treadmill test to assess their baseline. And then once we're done, I put together a plan for them to do either mostly at home uh, a combination of seeing me periodically or at home or if I've had a couple people that have come in, you know, two to three times a week for a while. Uh, but it, it's so varied. But the one thing that is consistent is that we have a whole team working with them, and that's been giving us the ability to even make improvements with those who don't see me as often. Uh-huh. 
and it, it started, you know, it's slow because we kept really tight controls on the people that are referred to the program. But uh, so far, the, the mounting evidence is, is saying that even uh, touching base with them, you know, once a week by a personal, uh, by an office appointment and, you know, doing exercise with them, or just setting, uh, like, reevaluation points, you know, at two or three or four months out, you know, I give them something that they have to work towards. And then staying in touch with them over the phone, even just a brief interaction saying, how you doing, is there anything I can help you with? Uh, it's it's starting to show some promise, and you know it's not the ideal three days a week for so many months, and then hand them off to a fantastic you know continuation program. But so far we're we're learning how to how to intervene and make some differences. Well, thank you very much for sharing your um, experiences, and um, interesting that you know a system like Kaiser is deciding that this is a, a useful, a, a worthy use of resources. And in many ways, Kaiser probably has a lot in common with Canada in terms of how they've got a global budget to manage. So I think it's uh, an interesting observation. So thank you very much for your comments. Uh, Dr. McDermott, I think it's time to turn it back over to you. Um, but first I want to say thank you to all of those of you who called in and who listened. Um, the questions have been wonderful and really helped to guide our discussion through things uh, and the issues brought up by this article. Uh, I want to invite Dr. McDermott uh, to give us any closing thoughts or comments. So I, I would just summarize uh, by reiterating the main take-home points from the study, which include, number one, we should really uh, be recommending supervised exercise training to all patients with peripheral arterial disease, whether or not they have uh, classic symptoms of intermittent claudication. Um, second, that leg strengthening does appear to play a role in improving some aspects of functional performance in patients with um, this condition. And as we've discussed today, um, you know, when, for the for the patient who doesn't have access to supervised treadmill exercise or other supervised exercise programs, I think there are still some creative things that we as clinicians can do uh, to help the PAD patient as much as possible adhere to a regular exercise program, thereby improving their functional performance. Well, great. And I'd like to thank you very much, Dr. McDermott, uh, first for your wonderful research and secondly for your participation on this call today and for providing us with such an enlightening discussion. Uh, in closing, I'd like to give all of our listeners a reminder that Author in the Room is a monthly program that takes place on the third Wednesday of every month at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. And as we said earlier, our next discussion will take place on March 18th. Uh, our, featured guest, our featured author will be Dr. Stephen Schroeder. Uh, discussing his publication, Smoking Cessation in Patients with Psychiatric Illness. That's in the February 4th um, uh, publication of JAMA. That is, actually is an abbreviated title, so if you go looking for it, it will be a somewhat longer title. Again, in closing, I want to acknowledge that uh, Author in the Room is sponsored by both the Journal of the American Medical Association and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. This is an interactive conference call designed to help you uh, translate research into practice and accelerate changes that will prove, uh, improve clinical care and our patients' health. Thanks again to all of you for being part of Author in the Room, and have a great day.